Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and Social Broadcast, this is Transmitter, bringing you original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scazzocchio and I'll be scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. The next hour is dedicated to some of the winning and shortlisted works from the French and Belgian Creative Radio Prize for Nergia. I'm pleased to say something produced by Social Broadcast came runner-up in the Speech Archive Prize, so we'll be hearing that later. First, let's put our ears to the ground in Suffolk with the winner of the Fenergia field recording category, Tom Fisher, also known as Action Pyramid, with his piece Hoverflies, Reed Pipes, Cockchafers and Bull Roarers. Thank <laughs> you. 
That was Action Pyramids, Hoverflies, Reed Pipes, Cockchafers, Bullroarers, taken from a series of field recordings made during the lockdown of 2020, when many people were tuning back into the countryside. This is one track of an album of Suffolk sounds called Singing Below the Surface, released by Café Otto. You can download the whole album at cafeotto.co.uk forward slash shop. Next, have you ever wondered what would happen if a daisy grew out of your head? I must say it's not something that's ever crossed my mind, but apparently it's a question people do ask. Phoebe McIndoo goes down a surreal rabbit hole with her piece, Daisy Daisy. Growth. Oh, there goes the daisy. Loneliness. Loneliness. Nothing. definitely appreciate this is probably a difficult time for you. Like this constant itch. Ah. Like the sound of Velcro. The sound of Velcro being pulled slowly away. A hundred gripping hooks. There's a big change in us physically. Um, I don't know, it can be quite alarming. I'm finding that myself, not to get too deep, but with my own body, I don't have... um... What would you do if you had a daisy growing out the back of your head? Yeah. What would you do? Yeah. I had that once. I had a crew cut, and then um, we uh, we used the daisy uh, for... It actually sort of stayed alive quite some time because it had quite a lot of tissue from my from my scalp in it, and so that kept it alive for about two weeks, and people couldn't believe it. Are you sure it's not just attached to your scalp? Is it actually coming out of your head? Yeah, it's coming out my head, because when I pick it, it feels like the same sensation as when you would pluck a hair It's not out. really painful, but it's just so... I just... <laughs> I've been Googling this for the past, like, five hours, and I can't find any apart from this stupid book. <laughs> No one else has had the same experience. Daisy's throwing out the back of your head is quite common and actually a natural phenomenon. And there's actually nothing in the world you can be experiencing that somebody else is not also experiencing. So you are not alone. I can never go home. Well, there, as a kid, I really liked the book, Daisy Head Maisie. My mum Nobody loves me. me. And after my sister died, there you was two years where I got her to read me the book constantly and constantly. Nobody loves me. Um, and the girl in the story even looks like me. See, this is a photo. This is me. The blonde hair. And I always wore this dress when I was younger, this pink one. I can never go home. What do you home. think the daisy might mean? Nobody loves me. What could me. have caused the daisy to sprout from the back of your head? Loves me. 
No, I rang him up on the phone because it was during COVID. And uh, we, we talked about it on the phone. He said, are you sure it's a daisy? And I said, yeah, it's got fucking white pebbles and a yellow bit in the middle. He said, oh, yeah, I've had a few people like that with, with that happening to them. Why does anyone grow a daisy out the back of their head? I don't know why it's happening. hard to believe such a thing could be true and I hope such a thing never happens to you. If I had a daisy growing out the back of my head I would water it. I'd make it grow into a massive daisy so that I had a big umbrella so that come rain or shine I was always protected. This sounds like that time when I was being kind of abducted by people and taken to far off places or... It's sort of like a person. It's sort of like an extension of me. And maybe this thing growing inside me is a way to be closer to you. Which is one of the kind of key reasons you got the job. So don't worry about us. We're happy to have you. And um, yeah, Blinkist is a very supportive place. So know that you'll have people that won't judge you for it. And this thing that's growing at the back of my head has a pulse, a throb. The heartbeat you can sometimes feel in your belly. Sound of a hundred daisies pressing through the earth. Why don't you think of a time when you thought people wouldn't accept something about you and it turned out to be okay? Or when you made an unpopular decision and it all turned out to be fine? Their tender, fragile stems somehow so um, robust. Contextualizing it in your own life might help. But it is part of you and you learn to incorporate it. I used to pretend it gave me magic powers. I pretended it made me invisible once to my friend at primary school. I said, look, I can turn invisible. And I went, and I pressed the button on my thumb. And then I went behind the playground, miss, and I, and I stuck my tongue out. And of course she didn't see because I was behind it. And my friend was like, wow. And I was like, see? And she said, how come I can see you? And I was like, because I want you to. And she was like, whoa. Yeah. She loves you. Maybe you just need a bit of time. Or maybe you just need a shower. Like, embrace it. Water your hair. See it grow. But I'm just worried about you kind of not being able to lift your head. And... Sound of twitching. Sound of twitching. Sound of growth. Sound of roots stemming into your brain. That was Daisy Daisy by Phoebe McIndoo, a shortlisted piece for the Fenergia Newcomers Prize. Now we'll enter more sombre territory with something I made with Sasha Eddie Lindner and Paulina Carlotta as part of a Manchester University research project called Brick 19. Lost in Translation is a montage piece interweaving the voices of funeral and death care professionals across faiths and people who have lost loved ones during the pandemic. And these are all made from interviews recorded remotely during the UK's tough winter lockdown restrictions of 2021. It's a sociological piece reflecting on how important religious and non-religious rituals are and the potentially long-term trauma incurred when they're taken away.
I'm not sure that things are ever going to go back to quite how they were before. I hope that some elements of being connected to people and being able to hug them and go into their homes to get to know them better and share a cup of tea with them, I hope all that will return. But I think the last year is definitely going to leave its scars. I think it's very disappointing how little thought has been put in to allowing people to grieve this whole year where we've had such restrictions and for some the restrictions have been accompanied by bereavement. It's barbaric. You're just robbing people who have already been robbed. It's insensitive. It does not allow for that chapter of a process to be closed. Yeah, I mean, the thing that has been said to me the most has been, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, and I hope he or she knew how much I loved them. My name is Lisa Wilkinson, and I live in County Antrim in Northern Ireland. So one of my roles is a humanist funeral celebrant. My father died 20 years ago. I remember I wanted everybody to go away. There was nowhere in your house that you could walk into where somebody wasn't standing. There were people everywhere. Tea and sandwiches reached to you all the time and all I wanted to do was ask them all to leave. But when you reflect back, there is a warmth about your grief being witnessed, which is currently absent. My father passed away 2018. I'm not a particularly religious person. I'm Jewish and I'm practising. But if I'm honest, I didn't really relish the thought of having to go through the intensity of being with a load of people and having to follow that practice of sitting shiver, it's called, being in mourning. It kind of felt that I've already lost somebody. I don't want to kind of go through that experience. The actual mourners descended upon my mum's house for the seven days of of mourning. Throughout the course of each day, mourners kind of drift in and you would kind of take your position of mourning with a shirt showing its rip, right, sitting on low chairs. It puts you into this zone that you're receiving, you're saying prayers, you're remembering. And at the end of it, you formally get up. The rabbi says, hey, time's passed, you know, long life. Get out, leave the house, go for a walk. You have now finished. And I personally found that whole process quite cathartic, therapeutic, if you like, and and helps you really get over uh, the intensity of the experience of losing someone. My dad used to say, the two best parties in life, they're either a wedding or a funeral. And he was absolutely right. It's where your body is alert and sensitive to a really either joyous moment or where it's an incredibly raw emotional environment where again, after a little bit of liquor, you can let your hair down. And that's what happens, you know, because it is ultimately the giving thanks for life and celebrating a life. My name is Toby Angel and I'm one of the co-founders and the managing director of a business called Sacred Stones Limited. We are charged with looking after the cremation ashes of loved ones 
and we're looking after families who wish to commemorate. A funeral is an acknowledgement that something has happened. It marks a significant change in our lives. Ultimately, life is going to go on and a funeral is an opportunity for us to acknowledge the reality of what's happened so that we can live our best lives moving forward. My name is Louise Winter. I'm a funeral director and the founder of Poetic Endings. We help people put together beautiful, thoughtful and meaningful funerals. Death is fascinating in all religions and all cultures. Death and its rituals are of very high importance and, and if they're not done correctly can lead to lasting memories for the families that they didn't do things right or as per wishes of the family. My name is Dr. Wahid Khan. I'm one of the trustees of the Inverness Mosque, uh, which is the northernmost uh, mosque in uh, Britain. When somebody dies, uh, people start gathering at the house of that person. Lots of neighbors uh, start producing food for that family so they don't have to cook. These are very social interlinked rituals or procedures which keeps the community binding. My name is Miri Lawrence. I'm a liberal Jewish rabbi. It's customary in Judaism when someone has died that you wish the mourner a long life. Sometimes that might seem a bit of a strange phrase, but it's kind of a rubric. So you just know what to say at a time where sometimes we don't have the words. If you accept that there are three principal rituals in life, union, people coming together, creation if they're fortunate enough to have children, and then of course death. And there are complex rituals around each of those three, but I would volunteer that perhaps the last one is so significant because it, it involves all of us. The restrictions have removed so many rituals and practices and processes. So normally as a celebrant you would always arrive very early and you would park outside the main building. No, not this time. You can't shake hands. You have to stand at a distance with a mask. You deliver the tribute outside this building. You're not allowed in the building. And then halfway through or whatever you nod at the funeral director who wraps these wooden doors twice. Two members of staff come out. They don't speak, don't offer condolences. They just take the coffin away and close these two wooden doors again. And then a small TV screen comes on outside. And that's how you say your final farewells on a TV screen. The main restriction right now is the number of people who are allowed to attend the funeral. Lots of burial chapels are closed, so graveside services have been taking place outside. When the first lockdown happened, and particularly flowers stopped, florists couldn't work, the flower markets were closed. And flowers have been such an important part of the funeral of bringing some color and life and joy and beauty to it. So it was really hard not being able to have roses to place on the coffin. I couldn't imagine a funeral where I didn't at least 
put an arm on a shoulder as we were walking to the graveside. I would normally give somebody a hug if they were distressed. That's not really about Judaism or religion. It's just the humanity of comforting somebody when they are grieving. And I remember at one funeral, one of the main mourners saying to me, I've got gloves on, can I at least hold your hand? It kind of felt, you know, you've got the government restrictions, which are there and should be there, but almost a feeling of being policed and doing the wrong thing at a time when everything physically in your body is saying, I want to reach out to that person. The government does issue guidelines through Public Health England, and that does allow a certain amount of interaction with the body, allows ritual washing and dressing, and providing precautions are taken. As a company, we have a much stricter policy because I don't trust that the virus won't mutate and that it is safe. So we've had to adapt to the restrictions the starting process of collecting a deceased you know we've had to have a dedicated transport team whereas um, historically family members would be involved in that my name is Shoah Bucks I'm a volunteer at Preston Muslim Burial Society that helps the Muslims of Preston and surrounding areas process their deceased the pandemic required a lot of background research into what's possible in terms of whether we're still able to continue to wash and shroud the way we've normally done. The gussel team or the shrouding and bathing team had to be a dedicated team of volunteers because we could put them through the appropriate training on how to don and doff PPE, how to ensure that the precautions were taken to reduce any risk of transmission, as well as how to continue giving the wash with certain protections. At my aunt's funeral, there had been new restrictions brought in that morning, where when the coffin is brought out of the hearse, it's sprayed. I was horrified. So I said to my sister, turn your back and take Aunt Margaret's perfume with you. And when they start to spray the coffin, spray her perfume everywhere. Let that be the spray noise that you see and hear and smell. The most important thing is that people mustn't feel rushed. And that is without doubt the biggest challenge for family. The fact that someone has died and they may not have even been there when they died or they may not be allowed to see them. But then when it comes to ritualising and giving thanks and they're told, well, you can only have 20 minutes, tops. Well, that is not healthy. That's my question, my one burning question. Who decided 20 minutes was enough? At the moment, the COVID regulations are making it quite difficult anyway because there's got to be enough time to clean everything down in between ceremonies. My name's Rachel Meyer and I'm a humanist celebrant. So I trained as a wedding celebrant first and then the pandemic hit and all the weddings were put on hold. So during lockdown, I decided it would be a good idea to do the training as a funeral celebrant. Um, but there's a lot more that goes into being a funeral celebrant emotionally because of course you're dealing with grief 
we have seen uh, a difference in terms of how families grieve. It has added additional pressure with having to deal with who they now take to a funeral, whereas previously would have been it's open to anybody and they would see, you know, hundreds of people uh, at a funeral prayer. You know that when you go to a funeral, there will be prayers, there will be some singing, there will be a eulogy, there'll be the rituals around the graveside and the putting the earth. And these have all been minimised to a certain extent. So, for example, you have to handpick your mourners. You don't have the music. Rather than have the committal with the spades of earth, you might just have either a small spade or just a very small handful. But when you all put it together, it, it kind of feels like half a funeral. My mum was in a nursing home for what was to be two weeks. And then on New Year's Day, the staff from the home rang to say I couldn't come because my mum was one of five residents who had tested positive for COVID. I knew, I knew straight away she won't make it. I got another call to say that she was unresponsive. And then another call 15 minutes after that to say that she had died. And it's at that stage where you realise all the things that you're not going to have, all those rituals and practices that bring comfort. So we weren't allowed to see her ever again. Fortunately for us, for a family of five, my husband, my son and his fiancée and my daughter and that's our bubble so we could be together because of my work. I knew I will never say goodbye to my mother on a TV screen, it's just not going to happen. And I was aware that the next nearest crematorium in County Cavan, which is in the south of Ireland, so under a different government, jurisdiction, everything. I knew that the crematorium there was a warmer place to be. Three hour drive, but I decided we're taking Granny to Cavan and it won't be 10 minutes outside on a TV. Grief in lockdown is so difficult. People have often been through really traumatic, awful experiences. I've noticed that lots of grieving people are going through a really intense period of pain. And it's because they are mostly at home thinking about what has happened and life is not moving. It all just feels very stuck. Since we were all completely sort of locked down, I've, I've been doing everything over Zoom. It's almost been um, a good part of the grieving process normally awake that follows the ceremony is the place where family friends would gather together and show each other support and people are not allowed to go into each other's houses anymore or get together so all of that support network has been stripped away and I've been told that having the zoom planning meetings for the ceremony allows more people than 
you perhaps might normally speak to, to be all together in the same room, albeit a Zoom room. And as a celebrant, you know, I'm firing questions at everybody, trying to promote memories of, of all times in the deceased's life. People say that it's actually given them the opportunity to think about the good times that they've had and, you know, have happy thoughts and smile in the middle of that grief. When somebody is in a near dying state, uh, we have a religious obligation to go and see them and pray and um, and recite the, the Shahada, which is there's only one God and Prophet Muhammad is the, the messenger. So one notification system we did and we felt it was very important to do right at the beginning of this pandemic is to have a Twitter account created specifically for Preston Muslim Burial Society and every deceased that we would process, we would then tweet out the name of that individual and where they were from and when they passed away and then a little prayer to go after that and we tweet that out as a public notification system purely to get the accurate details out there of who's passed away in order to avoid any misunderstanding as well as allowing people to then send on their condolences. I did a funeral ceremony for a lady who had died. She was living in a care home in Yorkshire and her son and his family lived in Hong Kong and because of the travel restrictions because of Covid they weren't allowed or it would it would have been incredibly difficult for them to come over for the funeral. So the funeral director arranged an audiovisual company to come and basically beam him into the crematorium chapel on a big TV screen. So he was beamed in live to speak to everybody during the ceremony. So not only was it webcast out to him, he was kind of in the room as well, which was incredible. Over the last year, we've been incredibly innovative, but the whole process around funerals and dying and the different periods of mourning, there's a familiarity about them. And I think that, that that's certainly why I haven't chosen to make innovations, because I think it's been important to keep as much as familiar as possible as part of taking comfort from the prescribed rituals and liturgy that's in existence. The more honest we are about what's going on, I think the better it can be. It's about allowing our emotions to come up, not trying to hide them or dismiss them or drink them away or smoke them away, anything like that. Just about sitting with the acknowledgement, the reality of what is happening um, so that we can find a way not to be completely traumatized by it like previous generations have been. Maybe it's a, it's a strange thing to say that, but the communities are more united and more together. Uh, after the pandemic actually than before, we, we will appreciate things like praying together, eating together, a lot more after this lockdown is finished. We have to mark this now. We have to leverage the cohesion that we're all experiencing to acknowledge that, you know, something monumental is happening to all of us. It affects all of us. So the COVID-19 stone came about 
because we just felt there was a need to do something. A family who've given a lot to our community had one of the senior members of their family die. The whole sort of communal life of how we would say goodbye to that person just wasn't able to happen. And I suggested that if we raised a standing stone, it would find a means to meaning in some ways. So my name's uh, Tim Ashton, and I'm a farmer from North Shropshire, the farm that my family look after here has spent the last four or five years developing a long barrow monument on it and there's also some standing stones and the whole area is a kind of ritual and memorial space. We had a service where we, we put the, the stone up. Symbolically the stone was standing and I'd put supporting poles against the stone and I'd invited every guest to remove a pole and say a few words and in doing so once the last pole was removed we were acknowledging that this stone had meaning, significance and permanence. And there was people from different faiths. There was myself um, with no faith. And there were a couple of people, I think, who had suffered bereavement. So it was a very personal uh, moment for them. And we all said a few words. My name's Peter. I'm a humanist celebrant. And the reason I, I loved the whole idea of the stone is precisely because it's non-prescriptive. So you've got this structure that people have gathered around to memorialise the times. And it wasn't just about people who died. It was about the whole experience of living under the restrictions and dealing with bereavement. It was important that it shouldn't be a memorial commemorating something in the past. It had to be about the here and now. It had to be about registering that we were living through something that is frankly bloody awful. I, I just hope that if this horrible situation ever arises again, we think in advance of how we might handle this better. And these, these are people, not just numbers. I haven't watched a news bulletin since because they all start with numbers. And for me, I just see it like um, a bingo caller calling out a number or take a guess how many it is today. No, absolutely not. My mum is my mum, not a number. For me, death is a very normal, everyday thing now. I'm always seeing the sadness and the grief of families. However, I see a lot of strength. I hear a lot of inspiring stories of what people have achieved in their life, what they've done and what they meant to others. It's certainly a fact of life and it's something we all want to prepare for before death does hit us. And we live this world where we've done the best we can for religion, for God and in terms of family. If you think about grief, it's a relationship that you have for life. It's not something you recover from. Grief softens, but grief is the mechanism or the word to describe the mechanism for which we give thanks and remember someone we loved. So when I think about my grief, I don't ever want it to go because it's the way I remember something. And I think if you can create an environment where people can journey comfortably at their own pace, then that becomes an inherently valuable and uh, constructive way of understanding how
how finite life is. That was Loss in Translation, and it came runner-up in the Fenergia Speech Archive Prize. The last work we'll hear is another field recording, and we're going to go a little further afield to West Africa. French recordist Pierre Costard captures the sounds of troubled waters at Lake Nokoe in Benin. It's called the Floating Exchange.
Tu vas à l'école Oui. Tu as quelle classe CM2. CM2. Tu as quel âge 11 ans. C'est bien. Tu peux continuer comme ça. Vous avez, vous avez quitté où Vous avez quitté où Quitté à Cotonou. Cotonou Oui. Vous allez quoi là-bas Tu Vous allez à l'école là-bas Oui. Pourquoi Il n'y a pas d'école ici Oui. Hein, pourquoi vous allez à l'école ici Pourquoi Vous allez à l'école
That was The Floating Exchange by Pierre Costard, shortlisted for the Fenergia Field Recording Prize. If you want to listen to other shortlisted works as well as this year's prize winners, head to fenergia.fr. That's P-H-O-N-U-R-G-I-A dot F-R. Well, that's it from me. You've been listening to Transmitter, a social broadcast production. All the details of what you've heard will be available on the transmitter tab of socialbroadcast.co.uk where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. You can also head to xmtr.fm, our new audio platform. I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in December. And if you have any recommendations, please do drop me a line via the website. Until then... Happy listening.